the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Stand on for life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado, and today is the Tuesday edition of the radio show. If you are just tuning in for the first time this week, uh, that means you may not be aware, but Pastor Ron is on vacation. In fact, you might be aware because he's been saying this all last week. <laughs> but he is definitely on vacation. Both he and Paula send their love. They are enjoying their time in the warm California sun. Uh, and and they send their love. They will uh, be there for the next uh, couple weeks. So this week and next week, I will be on the radio show filling in for my pastor, Pastor Ron. And uh, he will return uh, onto the show here to take your questions uh, in two weeks. But in the meantime, our show continues. We do the same thing even when he's gone. And we're here to answer your Bible questions, questions about the Word, how to put the Word into practice in your life, uh, doctrinal questions, church life questions, basically this. We want to help you fall deeper in love with Jesus. And so that's why we're here. Let me give you the phone numbers for your calls. The local number here is 210-340-9585. That's 210-340-9585. There is a toll-free number, 877-630-5757. Again, 877-630-5757. The email address is questions at calvarysa.com. Questions, that's plural, at calvarysa.com. You can submit questions that way. It'll come into our inbox, and then I'll ask them on the air. And we do have some that were submitted, so I'll take those today. And last thing, we have a church app. The Calvary Chapel of San Antonio Church app has a feature that allows you to submit your question there. So there's a form. You fill it out, and it goes right into our uh, inbox. Also, if you're driving and you're listening in your car, you can use the KSLR app allows you to just click the button at the top and it'll connect you right to the producer of the radio station and you could ask your question on the air. Okay, like I said, it's Tuesday and there isn't anything going on here at Calvary Chapel. If you can, remember to keep Pastor Ron and Paula in your prayers along with uh, some other families that are with them enjoying their time. They would appreciate it. Let's get to our questions that have been submitted while we wait for your calls. The first one is from Jack. Jack says, did Jesus lose his omnipresence when he lived on earth? Jack, no. Jesus, in his humanity, he temporarily limited his power, but he never lost his deity. That's important. And we see this in, in 1 Peter, we see it in Mark chapter 16, uh, where 
we read that Jesus sat at the right hand of God. Now, we know this place to be a position of authority. But still, seated at the right hand of God, he still maintained his omnipresence. Now, even more specific to your question, you remember in John chapter 1, while Jesus' ministry was here on earth, in his incarnation, remember when he called Nathaniel. I love this. His introduction to Nathaniel, actually Nathaniel's introduction to Jesus as he was being as he was approaching him, Jesus said to him, Nathaniel, I saw you while you were still sitting underneath the fig tree. And to Nathaniel's amazement, he realized that he was in the presence of God. Now, he may not have fully realized it, but this is one example of where Jesus, in his incarnation, while he lived here on earth, even though he temporarily limited his power, still exercised his deity by showing his omnipresence, his omniscience in that case. But I think that's interesting because the, the whole purpose of the incarnation is because God being spirit can't be material that we could see him. And so Jesus is the only Son of God, but God the Son, the physical manifestation of God, but yet being fully human in his incarnation was still fully God. So the answer to your question, Jack, is no. He did not lose his omnipresence, though he limited his power for us. Thank you for your question, Jack. Let's go right to our phone lines. Line one, Ruben from Seguin, you're on the air. God bless you, Pastor Ken. How are you doing, sir? Ruben, my friend, it's good to hear from you. Good night. Nice to hear you. I haven't talked to you in a while. Um, I have a question. Uh, you, uh, you know, you look in, you look online and you, know, you do studying. Uh, as far as, uh, like my niece, uh, she, um, they have her studying Greek mythology and all that, which, you know, um, it's part of the curricula and all that. And, and, um, I noticed they have, you know, all these sculptures of these different, uh, uh, people and everything. And I was just wondering, like the last supper port portrait that's very famous that a lot of Hispanic households have over their dinner tables. Um, I don't, I'm assuming that it was not commissioned by any one of the 12 apostles or Jesus himself. Um, I was just wondering, are there any portraits or any sculptures that were commissioned by the apostles or Jesus himself? Or are these just taken from what people assume they, that Jesus looked like? Hey, Reuben, gr great question. So the answer, the short answer to your question is no. There are no paintings, sculptures that are officially ascribed to the hands of the apostles that we know of. Uh, but giving... Given that information, you're correct. These uh, paintings and drawings, particularly the one you mentioned about the Last Supper, these are all created by famous artists. I, I think it'd be Michelangelo that did the Last Supper. I could be wrong. But these, like in your home and mine too growing up, in a culturally religious environment, these are icons that we see, things that we see that point to religion. So that painting is not from the apostles. Uh, it is man-made. And, and so I, I know growing up, I would ask questions about it. 
And all I would be told is that the the pictures represent the apostles and each one, and there's some some significance to uh, like the angle or what 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 each expression on each person's face, and and I didn't even understand any of that. And I was wrong, by the way. That's that's Leonardo da Vinci that wrote, uh, painted that. But the point still remains that th- there is no direct apostolic or direct biblical uh, uh, authorship to to those paintings. These are just people in the early centuries, primarily religiously motivated, that did these for uh, the Catholic Church. And that's the culture that I grew up in in our home. So, uh, Ruben, I hope that answers your question. But yes, no, no direct uh, correlation or connection to the apostles doing any type of paintings or sculptures. Now, that doesn't mean we can't enjoy them. We, we just enjoy them for what they are. They're paintings that try the best that they can with the limited information that they have to try to draw Jesus and what the apostles look like. We just have to make sure we do not uh, limit God and limit Jesus to what these paintings show. Like, for example, in my home, like I said, I grew up in a in a Catholic home, we had a picture of, uh, and for lack of a better word, I just can't think of any other way to describe it than this. There was like a surfer-looking Jesus on our wall. Pale skin, uh, long, flowing blonde hair, and and this was something that uh, it was sort of re ingrained in our mind that this is what Jesus looked like, but that's not what he looked like. And this is just some religious painting of what they thought of in their mind. So we have to be careful not to uh, put too much into these paintings, especially we don't want to ascribe to God uh, the things that are culturally influenced, but just take the Word of God and based on the, the history of the people that are in that region, he would look nothing like what we would see, what I would see in these paintings. But we can still appreciate them, Reuben. So I hope that helps. Thank you for your call, Reuben. Oh, by the way, let me add this. And you didn't ask this, but I'll add tangentially. When we have children, our children that are learning about the different cultures and the different religions. In your case, you mentioned, I think, your niece, who is learning about Greek mythology. Uh, I mean, that's going to be part of the curriculum that they're taught, but we teach them the Bible. We teach them who these people are, the characters of the Bible. These are real people, not made-up characters, not gods and demigods. These are real people. So even if our kids are learning things in public school that uh, are about different cultures and different religions, you want to make sure you teach them what is true so they have a foundation in the reality of God's Word. Jesus was a real historical person, just like the Apostle Paul was. And even if some places would have, say, a statue of Zeus and another statue of the Apostle Paul, you can tell her, look, this one's real and this one isn't. And that's important when we show them that God's Word tells us who these historical figures are and who those that are not real are. I hope that makes sense, Reuben. And again, I know you didn't ask that, but that's just important when it comes to our kids growing up in this current educational environment. God bless you, and thanks again for your call, buddy. Let's go back to our questions that were submitted. The second one, comes from Alyssa. Alyssa asks, what books can you recommend the new believer other than John and why? 
Uh, Alyssa, great question. And this is one we do get fairly often. But I like it because it, it comes from a heart that wants to know God's Word. As a new believer, uh, just start reading your Bible. The Gospel of John is a wonderful place to start, like you mentioned, Alyssa, because it explains to us who Jesus is. Now, the entire Scripture does from beginning to end. It tells us who Jesus is, but specifically John's Gospel, and particularly the first part of the first chapter, the first 18 verses, are a wonderful introduction of Jesus' deity, who he is, why he is God, but there's the best way to get to know who Jesus is is to read the entirety of the scriptures. So what other books would you recommend to the new believer? I would recommend Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Six chapters, very short, and pretty easy reading. And it's easily divided into two sections where the first half is about salvation for the individual what that means. And then the second half, chapters four through six, describe what that salvation looks like corporately. In other words, there is an internal change in the individual that takes place, and that is described in chapters one, two, and three of Ephesians. In chapters four, five, and six, Take the truth of the first half, the first three chapters, and explain how or explain what that looks like as it relates to the world around you, the church, the people, your gifts. And I think it's a wonderful way for a new believer to start off. In fact, new believer and old believers, the book of Ephesians is one we should go back to often to refresh ourselves in the truth of what God says about our salvation. One of the things that I love in particular, Alyssa, about Ephesians is in that first chapter where Paul is describing how we are sealed by the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance of what is to come. Now, this is where the Word of God where the rubber really meets the road in our lives. So the Word of God isn't something that we just read to memorize. But when you read that in Ephesians chapter 1, it gives us an assurance that we belong to Jesus, even when the world around us is, is crumbling and things aren't going our way, when our world is, is so rapidly changing, definitions are, are morphing, in as each day passes, the Word of God is constant. And so in that chapter, in that first chapter, as an example, Paul also says that we as believers have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. That means God has not withheld His grace and His love, His spiritual blessings upon us. He's like the way Pastor Ron puts it, he emptied the vault of heaven for us. And it's not based on our performance. It's based on the character of Jesus Christ and who he is. And when you have that full assurance of salvation and your identity in Christ, as it is established in this letter, it it changes the way you view life. It changes the way you interact with people. And more specifically, it, it gives you a motivation to live your life, the life that God has given you. It gives you the motivation to live your life for the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is where the rubber really meets the road in our lives and why the word of God is so important. So Alyssa, uh, there are plenty of books in the Bible that 
would help you. Pick any of them, particularly in the New Testament. Just keep reading. Now, I don't know if your question was implying or or was asking about books outside of the Bible. I don't think it was because you mentioned John and why. So that's why I said Ephesians. I don't typically, if you were asking for books outside of the Bible, I don't typically recommend anything else but the Bible, particularly for new believers. There are plenty of great books out there that you could read. But I would start off with repetition, 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 particularly of the New Testaments, that you have a solid understanding of your new relationship with the Lord. Um, Paul, the Pauline letters are wonderful. The, the, the gospels are also wonderful to get to know Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus while he was here on earth. Um, not just John's gospel, but the three other ones that are synoptic, meaning they are more uh, structured in a narrative format, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew's gospel is written specifically to uh, point the the Jews to the Messiah that they've been looking for. Mark's gospel written particularly to the Gentiles and to the Romans to show that he is the real Savior. And then Luke's gospel written to the Greeks, also to Gentiles, to show that Jesus was the perfect man. But all these different uh, perspectives point to the same person. And the Gospels are a wonderful way to get to know who Jesus Christ is. And, and that's what we tell people here at Calvary Chapel. One of the things that I encourage people to do when they first become a believer is to find out who Jesus is. To get to know who he is, not through online videos or through even through the radio or TV, but through the word of God. Find out what he's like. Who is this man that died for your sin? Who is this son of God that loves you so much that he paid the price for you that you couldn't ultimately pay? And what will happen, Alyssa, is this. A, a supernatural love for God and for his word will develop in your heart. And, and, and it's cyclical because this supernatural love will, will create an even deeper hunger and thirst for more of his word. As you dig more into his word, you'll find out more about who Jesus is. The more you find out about Jesus, the more in love you'll fall with him. This is what my wife says at the end of every Bible study on the radio. When Pastor Ron is on the air for his teaching radio program, uh, my wife does the intro and the outro recording. And at the very end, she says, fall in love with your Bible and you'll fall in love with Jesus. We promise. And it's absolutely true. So, Alyssa, thank you. I love the fact that you are hungry and thirsty for more of God's word. God bless you and welcome to the family of God. We are just under three minutes, so I don't have time for any calls. If you want to call, you can call in the second half of the radio program. But I do want to elaborate on this just a little bit more. Alyssa, um, you didn't ask this, but I want to take an opportunity to emphasize that the, that the Word of God is the primary way that the Spirit of God speaks to the man of God. And, and I don't mean it to make it sound like some, some trite saying, but if you think about this, the, the Word of God is the primary way that the Spirit of God speaks to our hearts. And what we as Christians want more than anything is for God to speak to our hearts. That's how hearts change. 
That's how lives change. That's how families are transformed. And so for the Christian that does not have a hunger and a thirst for God's Word, they are cheating themselves of the endless world of deeper intimacy that God has planned for them. So if you call yourself a Christian and you're not like Alyssa, where you don't have a hunger and a thirst for God's word, my encouragement to you this afternoon is to cultivate that. If you're not used to opening your Bibles, then start opening it. And if you are reading and you don't get it, or you don't understand what's going on, ask the Holy Spirit, and He will give you understanding. You'll fall deeper in love with Jesus, and you'll want to read more. Well, you can hear the music. That means we are finished with the first half of the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken. We will be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken, and this week I am filling in for my pastor, Pastor Ron who normally hosts this radio show to take your Bible questions uh, in, in the time that he is gone for vacation this week and next. I will be filling in for him. So our show continues. As usual, we're here to take your questions, questions about the Bible, how to put the Word of God into practice in your life. And let me give you the phone numbers so that you can call in. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. Toll-free number is 877-630-5757. And the email address is questions at calvarysa.com. Okay, let's go on to the questions that have been submitted. Well, we don't have anyone waiting online, oh, waiting on the phone lines. The next one is from Jasmine. Jasmine says, why do we inherit Adam's sin instead of him pay for his own sin? You know what, Jasmine? It's a great question. Uh, but the Bible does give us the answer. Now, Romans, Paul writes to the Romans, in chapter 5, and he says this, that through one man, this man Adam, sin and death enter the world. And because of Adam, everyone that was born after him inherited his sinful nature. Now, when you and I are born, Jasmine, people that are born now, we inherit our parents' physical attributes. But because Adam is the federal head of all humankind, we all inherit his sinful nature. And because of his sin, everyone born after him has been passed on this same sinful nature. So that's exactly what Paul writes to the Romans, that Adam, through Adam, sin and death entered the world. Now, he goes on to say, but in uh, Paul, in that same chapter, that in the same way sin entered through one man, so does grace enter through one man, and his name is Jesus Christ. You see, the grace of God is that forgiveness for our sin is available in the same way 
that Adam's sin has infected all of us, so too does God's provision of grace through Jesus Christ provide forgiveness for all of us. This is why, Jasmine, it's important that we don't focus on being angry at Adam. We instead recognize that we do possess a sinful nature. Remember what King David wrote in Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Acknowledging the fact that we are born sinners. All of us are. Even the cutest of cute babies. They are sinners. That's why we sin. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin, but we are born sinners, and that's why we sin. I hope that makes sense, Jasmine. So, yes, you're right. We do inherit Adam's sinful nature. But the focus, again, Romans chapter 5 there, is confirming the fact that, yes, we inherit a sinful nature, but focus on the fact that God, by his grace, has provided forgiveness for our sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Jasmine, I hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Uh, I, I, I particularly find great comfort in this because one of the things that I was so grateful and I still am to this day. But when I first got saved, I remember it very vividly. November 30th, 1997, San Diego, California. I was, it was a night, nighttime service there at Horizon Christian Fellowship. And I did not want to go to church. But somebody brought me. And because I didn't want to act like I wasn't comfortable. I just went along with it anyways because I thought I was a religious person. But I had no clue what God had in store for me that night. And as the Bible study went on, I, I realized what was going on. The Lord spoke directly to my heart, and and I knew that what he was talking about, the pastor, what he was talking about is exactly what I wanted. But here's the first thought that came to my head. But what about when I sin again? What about this unstoppable force of sin in me that I cannot control? That's the first thought that came to my head. This sinful nature in me was so strong, and I knew it. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to control it. That's why this passage in Romans 5 means so much to me because you're right, I cannot control it. This is exactly what God says. But Jesus Christ died so that the bondage of sin could be broken and I would be empowered by his spirit. He would be the one to say, he would be the one to teach me to say, no, I don't have to do it on my own. In fact, I can't do it on my own. He will do it for me as I grow in my walk with Jesus. It became painfully obvious to me as a person who was a sinner and after years of trying to be a good person, miserably failing, that I couldn't do it. And so when Jesus Christ, Paul writes about Jesus Christ being the one who entered into the world that our sin could be forgiven. To me, this is everything that I've been looking for. So that's why I I love your question, Jasmine. Thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next question from Anonymous. This one, Anonymous asks, is there a reason 
People tend to look to imperfect people rather than our perfect Jesus for guidance and to follow. Anonymous, I don't know the exact answer to your question, but I do know this. And related to Jasmine's question prior, we all have sinful nature. This nasty, wicked, evil, sinful nature wants to look anywhere and everywhere else except for Jesus. So your question, is there a reason why people tend to look to imperfect people? We love looking at people who are worse than we are so that we can feel better about ourselves. This is why when we want to feel better about ourselves, we don't compare ourselves to Jesus. We don't compare ourselves to the Word of God. Instead, we pick somebody that's easier to compare ourselves to, somebody that'll make us look better, and that's imperfect people. Well, if you look around, there are plenty of imperfect people to compare ourselves to, and that's, that's why we do it, because of our sinful nature. Hebrews tells us to to lock in on Jesus, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. So I like to describe it this way. In that passage in Hebrews 12, it, it the 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 word picture of a racehorse with blinders is what always comes to mind for me. A racehorse with blinders. This is a a machine, a muscle machine set on a full-on sprint that is focused in on their lane and, and, and has their eyes fixed on the prize, the goal line. And... Even if there are other horses in the lanes to their left and to their right, they're not distracted. Those blinders on the racehorse are, are, are forcing that horse to stay in their lane, and they run at full speed. I don't want to look at imperfect people, even if it would make me feel better. I want to look to Jesus. He is the standard. When, when the Bible tells us to, in King James, that Pastor Ron loves to quote in this verse, and I love to quote this verse too in King James, be ye perfect, as my Father in heaven is perfect. To me, it just has a greater impact to it. <laughs> but be ye perfect means that it's either perfection or failure. And since... I can't be perfect. I got to fix my eyes on Jesus, who is the perfect one. And by focusing on him, Jesus, I become positionally perfect in Christ. Practically, that means I'm going to sin. But when I know who I am in Christ, my Paul writes at the end of 2 Corinthians to aim for perfection. Even if I'm not perfect, I want to aim for perfection. I don't want to aim for imperfection. That's why I don't want to look to imperfect people. That's how we become more like Jesus. You know, when when I was a lot younger. Uh, one of the things that I used to do was play nine ball. I would be uh, one of those punk kids that would go into the bowling alley pool hall with a bunch of older guys. And me and actually Pastor Alfredo was one of them. He, him and I would go to the pool halls and Pretend Well, in our minds, at least, we thought we were going to hustle some of these older guys for some money because we, we could play a little bit of nine ball. But we didn't just learn how to play nine ball by picking up a cue, cue stick and hitting balls. 
what we did was we played people who were better than us. That's how you get better. We didn't people we didn't play people who were worse. And even if we played people who were better than us, uh, made us it made us feel humiliated at sometimes. We got better. Well, in a way, it's kind of like our walk with Jesus. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus, not not fix our eyes on somebody less than Jesus, because he is the standard. And if we want to be more like him, we got to fix our eyes on him. To Anonymous, I, I hope that helps. And it's a fact of life. It's just the fact of our sinful nature. We, we do want to look at people that are less than perfect because that makes us feel better. But don't do that. Don't settle for less than Jesus. Thanks for your question, Anonymous. Uh, we do have some questions that were submitted to our email inbox. I'll go ahead and take those. This first one, uh, it's a little bit long, and it's addressed to Pastor Ron. I'm going to go ahead and answer uh, or attempt to answer this one, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, again, because of the length, but you'll get the gist of it, and if Pastor Ron wants to elaborate on it, uh, he can do so when he gets back. So it says, howdy, Pastor Ron, I have a crazy question for you. First, I'd like to frame it. I realize that there are many traditions, good, bad, neutral, that have been adopted by Western Christendom over the centuries. For example, the Christmas tree. Uh, there is no biblical mention of the Christmas tree. It is a Western invention, much after that fact. It is not inherently good or bad, but it has become part of the Western culture based on Christianity. I've done some research on research recently on biblical marriage. The vast majority of Christian churches teach marriage to be between one man and one, one woman based on the model which God gave us in the garden with Adam and Eve. Yes. While there are many examples of polygamy in the Bible, the explanation that most Western churches give is that God allowed polygamy but never condoned it. I accepted this explanation for many years. However, Recently, reading Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 8, I was surprised to see God's words through Nathan in confronting David after his sins with Bathsheba and Uriah. I think the King James has the most accurate translation of the original text. It quotes, And I, give, and I gave thee my, thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. The way I read this, God didn't just allow polygamy, God actually gave David multiple wives. And then I'm going to skip the rest of this because I think that is the gist of the the email because there's a little bit more here. And then the question here, it seems uh, the more research I did on biblical marriage as one man and one woman doesn't seem quite accurate. It seems more based on tradition than actual biblical practices. So, question, why did polygamy become unacceptable and mainstream to Christianity? Then he says, thank you for your ministry, Pastor Ron. God bless you. And it's from Alex. Okay, Alex. Uh, First of all, the very beginning of your email really gives us the answer. And the answer is that the standard for marriage was given to us in the garden. And what you used to think is correct. And what you think now, what it sounds like you think now is leaning towards an unbiblical view of marriage. In the garden, when God created Adam, he gave to him one wife. That was Eve. And that became the example. Now, to your point here about Second Samuel chapter 12, context is key here. In Second Samuel, when Nathan the prophet is talking to King David, you're correct, he is not promoting polygamy. 
this chapter, this passage is about David, King David, inheriting the possessions of King Saul. And as a result of that inheritance, he, he was given over the things that belonged to Saul. Primarily, it was the throne now being actually handed over to King David and everything else that he possessed. So it wasn't um, an approval of polygamy. God is simply saying through the prophet Nathan that everything that belonged to King Saul now belongs to you and is it your responsibility to be the keeper of everything, to maintain the kingdom. Now in your in your uh, email here, you mentioned that you mentioned that the one of the key words here in the King James seems to indicate that when the King James says "into thy bosom," it seems to intimate uh, imply intimacy. But th- that's not the correct interpretation. Again, the context shows that. Intimacy or the material possessions isn't what's in view here. It is the greater picture of everything that is being, uh, that was part of King Saul, King Saul's kingdom, and that being gone now, him handing everything over into David's care. Into David's care. So into his position for him to care, not necessarily for him to have relations with multiple wives, and therefore God does not condone this. Again, you never want to use one verse to to build an entire doctrine on. Uh, we go by the standard established from the very beginning there in the garden. When God created man, he created for Adam one wife. And he makes it very clear uh, not to take many wives. So the example of polygamy, just because it is something that is honestly represented in the Bible, does not mean God approves of it. So Alex, I I hope that answers your question. Please uh, stop digging into this unbiblical teaching. Sometimes um, we get so deep into a rabbit trail that we, we, we miss the obvious. And the obvious here is that one man, one wife, Jesus affirmed this when he said the two become one. Talking about marriage, he doesn't say that the the multiplicity of wives and one man become one. The two become one. One man to one woman to be married together. So that is the standard of biblical marriage. Now, the world may say something else. And that's fine. But as a Christian, as a believer in God's word, please don't take verses and try to skew them into a worldly understanding of what marriage is. Thank you, Alex, for your question. I hope that helps. We are inside here five minutes, so I, inside three minutes, actually, so I don't have time for any phone calls. If anybody wanted to call in, you can save your phone calls for tomorrow. Um, next question is from Matthew. Matthew uh, says, how was Matthew able to write as an eyewitness about so many things that occurred before he was actually called by Jesus to follow him in Matthew chapter 9? Great question, Matthew. So Matthew, about Matthew, <laughs> is is really simple. And so, yes, you're correct. In, in Matthew's gospel, Levi, his name, also Matthew, introduced or is called by Jesus in chapter 9. Well, what about the first eight chapters? Where did he get that information? And the answer is pretty easy. It's very similar to what happened to to Luke. You know, Luke's gospel, particularly the early parts of his gospel, had a lot of information that he wasn't privy to because he wasn't around. 
But the Holy Spirit took the information from those eyewitnesses that were there and shared this information with the other writers. And that would be the same case for Matthew. Historically, it's probably the case that Mark's gospel was was the first one written. And some of that information might have been shared with the other gospel writers. It doesn't mean that they copied, that Matthew copied Mark, or that Luke copied Mark. This would be the Holy Spirit taking the information of those other eyewitnesses and using their hand to pen down the scriptures. In this case, the gospel message. The Gospels of Matthew, yes, and I I love the, the ninth chapter that shows that he was called by Jesus. But it was the Holy Spirit that gave him that information. Well, you can hear the music. That means that the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life is now finished. My name is Pastor Ken, and I'll be filling in the rest of this week. That means tomorrow, 4 o'clock, we'll be here at The Word to Stand On for Life. Until then, God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.